0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network.
1: You're listening to episode 266 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Justin Snare is the Director of Cloud Infrastructure for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. He's been with the Cultural Trust for 10 years and is passionate about his job. He currently has eight AWS certifications and is always learning more. This man literally eats, sleeps, and breathes AWS infrastructure. He is also a devoted husband, father, and in his spare time, an avid woodworker. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, thanks, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Justin, can you please tell us your IT origin story? Sure. I mean, I think
0: like most people in it started at a very young age. You know, I got that first computer and I just wanted to learn everything about it, learn how it worked, uh, learn how to program things, especially on it. Um, I think I installed Linux on my family's computer when I was nine, which was not uh, didn't go over very well with my parents um, since they didn't even know how to turn it on at that point. <laughs> um, but I loved it. Um, and th- that's kind of where it started. I fell in love with that. I um, really focused on like computer classes in high school and then uh, went to college for um, network administration and network security more focused. Um, then when I started with The Trust, I had a few other jobs, and then when I started with The Trust, I kind of was thrust into the whole um, cloud stuff uh, and really fell in love with it and kind of sparked a new passion, um, whereas before it had been mostly the security and networking side and now, now it's more DevOps and, and uh, cloud infrastructure.
1: So when you started at the Trust, everything was very much stored like on site? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. When we, when, the day I started was actually the day that we had
0: actually undertaken a big website redesign project. That was my very first day, so it was kind of overwhelming. Um, but We worked with the, with the um, developers to kind of get a plan together on what kind of environment we wanted to have. And yeah, at that point, everything was all self-hosted, um, but that was kind of the my first experience with ever even using Ruby or Rails for anything. So
1: Oh, interesting. So I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about all the AWS certifications you have. So, any tips and tricks on getting certified?
0: I would say the biggest thing is to get your hands dirty. Actually, get in there and learn. I mean, for me at least, I'm a I'm a hands-on kind of learner. I like to get in there and just tinker with things and, and kind of see how it how everything works. Um, the AWS documentation is actually really, really good, so I've never had a problem finding the answer to something that I needed to know on AWS, just looking at their documentation. Uh, and then also, I take advantage of a couple different um, training programs, A Cloud Guru for one, um, and Linux Academy is the second one. I really like Linux Academy training because they've got virtual labs and um, uh, graded virtual labs at that, so they can tell you exactly what you did wrong uh, and graded for you, which uh, comes in really handy. And then just, um, my general strategy when I take a test is, you know, I, I like to take their practic- the AWS practice exams and get at least a 90% before I ever attempt the real thing. Um, and then on the real test, I will answer the questions I know right away, the speed through everything. If I pause for even 30 seconds on a question, I'll skip it and come back to it at the end just to make sure I can get all the questions answered in the time allotted, because there are quite a lot of questions and you don't have much time to really spend on just one question without.
1: One thing that I really enjoy that you've done, I got the AWS Certified Developer Certificate about three years ago and then recently had to get recertified. And since then, you actually built a sandbox environment at the trust so that multiple people could go into the account, spin up resources and not worry about it. Do you think this is something that most organizations should be doing
0: uh, yeah absolutely i mean i think we're we're lucky that we have a boss that kind of uh understands the the importance of the, the training and kind of hands-on training so i had kind of asked for that for a couple of years and finally you know we we sent quite a few people to the aws conference this year so i thought it was a good opportunity to roll that out so that everyone would have something to use you know just to do the labs at the conference um but then moving forward To experiment with whatever they need to you know in aws just kind of learn and and uh grow
1: yeah so as the trust director of cloud infrastructure what has been the trickiest part of managing a rails environment so
0: i would say i mean it definitely used to be like managing all the gems and dependencies but bundler has made that like A a no-brainer anymore. Um, It also used to be a little difficult because we used to try to run multiple versions of Ruby on the same server. So we were dealing with, you know, like RVM or something like that to control which versions were being used. Um, And we've simplified that infrastructure down so that we're only running a single application on any one server. Mm -hmm. So that really eliminates the need to to maintain multiple versions of Ruby in parallel. Um, So really, I mean... Difficulty at this part, at this point, I mean, we've kind of got it into you know autopilot. So, um, knock on wood here, um, it's pretty easy these days yeah, with AWS.
1: When I, mean, I started with the trust, we had a custom deployment application that would manage all of that. And one thing that I'm really proud of as a team, I feel, is that we keep offloading things to existing AWS services, so that we can really smooth out those deployments. It used to be where we would choose to deploy at very strategic times throughout the day. And while we still tend to do that because we need to dance around big on-sales and whatnot, I mean, if we have something that needs to go out to production, I feel that as a team, we're just a lot more confident about getting those across.
0: Yeah, and obviously continuous improvement, continuous delivery is a big uh, buzzword these days. Yes. um, Yeah, you should be able to. You should be able to deploy whenever you need to, even if it is in the middle of an Uh, Mm on-sale. If everything's built properly and your deploys work properly, then deploying during an on sale should not be a problem.
1: No, completely agreed. And our listeners have heard many tales of me talking about getting ready for Hamilton. And Justin was a huge integral part in making sure that that on sale was a success. So let's dive into the reason that I brought you on today and talking about upgrading a Rails environment. So at the Trust, we're moving away from Ubuntu 14.04 because it's reaching end of life. Can you break down for the listeners what that actually means? Sure. So uh, Canonical,
0: which is the company that releases Ubuntu, um, they release new software, new long-term supported versions of their operating system every two years. And the long-term supported version basically just means that it's supported for five years from the day it's released. Um, And then uh, on the off years, they release kind of their beta versions where they're they're really only supported for two years. So our strategy has always been to only use the long-term support Versions just because that gives us five years before we really need to do another upgrade. Um, they'll keep everything running during that period of time, um, and there's no real reason to upgrade as long as everything works, and or you have a really compelling reason that you need a package that isn't available yet. But we've not run into that luckily um, in a long time. The when it when when it actually goes end of life. So right now we're on fourteen oh four, which is end of life as of yesterday. Um, That basically means that Canonical is no longer gonna release any bug fixes or upgrades or security patches of any kind for any of the packages installed on the operating system. So um, while that's not total buzzkill, it can, it it makes administration a lot more difficult. So obviously using a package manager makes things a lot easier to install things, upgrade things. If once you're end of life, the only way to do those types of security or bug fixes to actually compile things from source, and install things the old-fashioned way, which, while doable, is likely to break a lot of things if you've been running packages the entire time up to that point. So um, our general rule of thumb is we'd like to upgrade before uh, we're completely end of life, but uh, we were a little bit delayed this year on our schedule, um, but we should still be done in the next week or two, so uh, we're not too far behind.
1: So just to make that clear, so say next week, um, something like Heartbleed was discovered. What would happen to the people who were currently on Ubuntu 14.04? The only
0: way they would be able to fix a bug like that would be to then, whenever, let's say, Heartbleed OpenSSH would release their fixed source code, Mm -hmm. they would have to manually compile that from source and replace all their binaries on their system manually with the patched version, which especially with something like OpenSSH, which is built into many, there's dependencies from almost every package on the Mm -hmm. operating system. Um, Doing something like that manually is certainly error-prone and um, just not recommended.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense and I think there's a a real division between our listeners of who is on a platform like AWS where you're managing a lot of these things and then using something like Roku Mm -hmm. Or Cloud 66 in order to manage your your environments, just because those platforms as a service will manage all of that for you, but you're certainly paying for that expense. Sure. And so, if you're lucky to have someone like Justin to ha- to have someone like Justin on your staff, then you're able to keep on top of those kinds of things. But otherwise, um, you're at real risk if you if you don't keep up with the with those security fixes so what is the trust plan on upgrading our ruby on rails environments because we do have four different applications that we run on almost the same ruby on rails versions
0: yeah i mean so i kind of touched on it a little bit but i mean the the main thing is we we only use the long-term supported releases of ubuntu um we tend to be a little more bleeding edge when it comes to ruby and um Passenger mm-hmm. and NGINX. Uh, we kind of we're usually on the latest of all of those things. But in terms of the operating system, we usually stick with the the, the long-term supported releases, um, and we really don't upgrade from that unless until they go end of life, or like I said before, there's a compelling reason, um, some software that's not available or a version that's not available in a packaged form um, that kind of forces us to upgrade. Um, once we've decided that we're going to upgrade, we usually take uh, the path that we upgrade our test servers first, then obviously production. Um, this particular upgrade is a little bit different because we're, we're changing a couple other things within our auto scaling group, so it makes it a little more complicated. But the general rule of thumb is, you know, it's pretty pretty much the same: um, upgrade test, then prod.
1: So if we had maintained everything, and we're really using this as a uh, the ability to upgrade other things, as Justin mentioned, we're going to be upgrading our Ruby version. There's been a lot of security patches to Ruby recently. I think Ruby's at 2.6.4 at the moment, which is already different than what we're already starting to upgrade with, so we'll have to re-upgrade. Um, but if we had kept everything at status quo, if we hadn't changed anything else, would the upgrade path from Ubuntu 14 to 18 be difficult?
0: Well, the way we chose to go at this was to not really do an upgrade. We're kind of starting with a fresh Ubuntu eighteen zero four server and uh, scripted out the entire process to get that blank uh, Ubuntu eighteen zero four AMI from AWS to have all the soft to bootstrap it basically with all the software that we need to run our application. Um, I thought it was important this time to script that all out. When we originally built this environment, a lot of it was done by a consultant. Mm-hmm. And since that time, while we kind of had an idea of everything that was needed and we've upgraded things as we needed to, we've never actually had to build a server from scratch with all of this stuff. We've kind of just used their images and kind of upgraded along the way. So this was the first time we've we've kind of, or I've kind of uh, done this whole thing from from zero. Uh, which was great because we really needed to have all of this documented and we didn't because they didn't really provide us any of that stuff when they left us, um, as uh, contractors tend to do. Um, Let's see. Um, But yeah, that's, that's basically the genesis of why we decided to use a script this time.
1: So, how do we how do we get to the conclusion of what sizing we should be using for these servers? Because as you mentioned, we're starting over with new sizes. So, how do we know what is the best type server type that we should be using for these applications? So,
0: generally, the way we figure that out in the past, and we're kind of locked in now um, to a server size because we do reserved instances, so we're locked in for three years. So, what, before we make those decisions, and so it's going to be a three year commitment, we do heavy load testing on the application. Um, and we're testing you know, how many users we can throw at it before it dies and then basically what, how many users we can throw at it and maintain the performance that we'd like. So we kind of throw a crazy number at it to see what it takes to actually kill it uh, and then we kind of see what the number is that it can operate within our uh, expectations without killing it. And that's kind of how we size it based on that. We kind of size it based to handle 100 concurrent users per server. Um, that's just kind of what we've done Um, you could obviously make your servers bigger but because we use auto scaling um, you're paying for that extra size so we'd rather have each server handle a smaller number of users and then scale up as we need more servers uh, rather than just buying bigger servers to start with Um,
1: so for our listeners who have never actually conducted load testing before do you recommend that they spin up a separate environment and try to hit it as hard as they can or should they actually try to off like A load test against their production environment on off hours?
0: I can see the merits of both uh, methods. Um, If you have a way of completely copying your production environment exactly, which we do in AWS, it's very easy and a lot of other hosted platforms make it pretty easy to spin up a a duplicate copy of the environment. Um, As long as you're testing apples to apples, that, that strategy works just fine. Um, I still think it's worthwhile, though, to test against your production site just to make sure that you truly are testing apples to apples and that there's not some little difference that you're going to find out down the road that, oh, we forgot that production has this other little setting on it that, that this test server didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would recommend you start with kind of not production. And then once you've kind of got everything dialed in, you've got your tests dialed in, you know exactly what you want to test and how many users you want to throw at it. You do wanna, it's important to test production as well.
1: Completely agreed. So you mentioned that you're writing a custom script in order to upgrade our Ruby on Rails environments. And so I'd love to uh, briefly walk through the custom script that you wrote and highlight what you're executing because eventually this is just going to be incredibly easy for us at the Trust to be able to just execute this script, you know, should we need to spin up a new application. We actually just acquired a different application from a consultancy and it became incredibly easy for us to integrate that over into our environment just because we have pretty much a set formula of how we host Ruby on Rails applications at the Trust. So if you wouldn't mind uh, briefly walking through that script, that would be great. Sure. So, I mean, it's it's just a bash script.
0: It uh, gets attached as user data to the AMI whenever it's launched. So basically whenever the instance comes up, all this stuff just runs automatically. So it's bootstrapping the instance with everything we need. And yeah, I'll just run through everything that that we're doing here. Um, First step is we're just gonna do an update on on the uh, apt-get update, which updates all the packages available to the apt-get package manager. And then an apt-get upgrade actually upgrades all those packages that are available. That's kind of the first step, just because the AMI from uh, AWS is Ubuntu 18.04, but it's Ubuntu 18.04 at the time that that AMI was created. So there's probably packages that have been released from the time that that came out until now. So it's important that you get everything up to date as fresh as possible before, before you start this process. The next step is installing um, uh, Python 3 and the AWS CLI, because we take advantage of the AWS CLI for a lot of other things moving forward in the script. So it has to get installed kind of right off the bat. Then we set a few variables here. Um, this is mostly used for, we use SSM, which is uh, AWS Systems Manager to do some automation stuff on the servers. So uh, th- we set some keys for SSM in terms of um, what SSM uh, policies it should be downloading. We set a, we create a variable for the region and the host name and the different tags that we want the servers to be tagged with. Um, let's see, what do we do? Next we set the time zone to Eastern. That's basically what we've used for all of our servers. So um,
1: yeah. We're an Eastern-based business, yeah, but not everybody's that way. Yeah, so. we're
0: we're in the East Coast, but um, you know that's personal preference. A lot of people like to use UTC these days. Um, and then we get into installing some of the prerequisites for everything else that's going to get installed. So um, uh, certificates, um, the build essential tools, so that we can compile software, uh, MySQL clients, and the MySQL libraries. Then we start adding some custom repositories, so we don't get all of our packages from the Canonical repository, which is the Ubuntu you know official repository. Um, a lot of the software that we use is more up to date in some of the specialty repositories. So, for instance, for Node.js we use their repository directly, and for Yarn as well. Um, for Ruby we use the Brightbox repositories, um, and they're usually right on top of things, new versions are released within a week, as opposed to Canonical, where, you know, you're probably waiting a month or so before they, they get around to it, unless it's a security issue, and then they, they're pretty quick. But uh, if it's just a feature release, you're going to wait a while. Uh, and also then Fusion Passenger, we use a custom repository from them, so that we can get the latest compiled binaries of Passenger quickly and easily. Uh, and then once we add all the custom repositories, then we go through and actually install the software from those repositories. So um, uh, Image magic and curl and some libraries needed for Ruby and then we actually install Ruby um, install Bundler and Update Bundler install Node.js, Yarn, Passenger, Nginx um, We install PostFix and configure that so email can be relayed through the server. We use SES for that. Um, we also um, we use Radius to, to authenticate from our Linux servers back to our Windows servers here on premise. So we then configure Radius on the server so that our users can log in with their same username and password that they log into their machines here, uh, which is then I then add the local users who should have access to the box. The next step is I install Code Deploy, which is the deployment tool that we use from AWS to actually deploy the code on the servers. So this bootstrapping uh, script doesn't deploy any code, but it gets all of the tools onto the server that are needed to deploy the code. And then we let those tools do that because that's what they do best. And then finally, CloudWatch logs. We install that just for sending um, system logs to CloudWatch for later analysis. And then finally, there's a section at the bottom where we kind of do some Boolean logic to test if what kind of server it is. So based on the tag on the server, if it's a test server, we may install some other packages that don't get installed in production. Uh, If it's one of our other um, applications, uh, for instance, one of our applications has Postgres installed on it, um, so we have to install the Postgres libraries for that server, but not really anywhere else. So rather than creating a whole separate script for that server, I just added some logic into this to detect if this is that server, install this. Um, And that's pretty much it.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, And, and I, I
0: think I can. I don't think there's anything, there's probably a few things I need to scrub out of here, but I could share this with, oh, great. with your listeners. That would um, be wonderful. If they wanted to get a head start on, on doing something like this themselves, um, there's just a few things I have to scrub out of this that are kind of secret. But
1: <laughs> I was just about to say that just reading that script, I think, generated a large section for our show notes. But yeah, yeah, it's big. <laughs> I, can, I,
0: I think it's probably easy to just share the script. Probably. Um, but...
1: Yeah, we'll definitely do that as a guest or something in the show notes. So be sure to check that out, li- listeners, because Justin has put a lot of work into this and definitely want you to be able to read the benefits from it. So um, we mentioned how experienced Justin is with AWS. And so I'd love to wrap up the show by asking him, what is the coolest thing that you're currently working on?
0: Well, I guess that depends on everyone's interpretation of cool. Because <laughs> I've got two projects right now. In AWS that I'm working on that are that are big. The first one is that which is really big is we're currently in the process of migrating our uh, CRM application, which is a, the main business application that we have here. It's basically our entire business um, to the cloud, um, which has been very challenging. Um, definitely, probably not the most interesting thing to a lot of people, but. Um, trying to fit a legacy application into modern architecture is quite a challenging thing to do, um, and there were quite a few hurdles along the way. And so I just found that really rewarding um, to be able, I mean, we're pretty close right now to making that happen. We're about two months away from going live in AWS, and um, I'm excited about that. I'm ready to be done, but it was, it was really fun and rewarding to, to kind of get there, um, and I learned a lot. And then the other thing that's probably a little more fun for everyone else is um, we're working with the AWS deep lens camera to develop a, kind of a facial recognition application. L- Long term goals of that would be to, to maybe do a ticketless entry at our venues so that people could basically walk in and your face is your ticket essentially. You, you, you show up to the show with nothing. You walk through a special gate that has a camera and when it sees you it knows that you're supposed to be there for the show and kind of just lights up a green light and you and you pass on through uh proof of concept of that we've got a camera sitting in our in our office right outside where we're doing this um podcast right now and um it's basically watching people as they walk in the door and then if it recognizes that person it greets them on slack if it doesn't recognize that person it sends a message to a slack channel to basically train the model of who that person is. Um, it's we've had some success with it. I think what we've realized is we're running into a kind of a limitation of the deep lens hardware. Um, the camera on the deep lens is really only like three megapixels. so when you're training the uh, images that you're going to be using for facial detect, uh, detection later, if you're training them with poor quality images, you're going to get poor quality facial detection out. So, um, I think kind of our next step that we realize is we can't use that camera it's kind of just a prototyping camera It wasn't really meant for uh, you know a full-blown application So I think the next steps of that project are going to be to get some different hardware with some better camera on it and see Kind of where we can take that.
1: Very cool. Well, um, how can our listeners follow what you are up to?
0: Not real big on the whole social media thing. I kind of <laughs> kind of a recluse, but I um, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Or um, if you're you know, looking for help with AWS, you could find me on Upwork for sure. Uh, Justin Snare, both places.
1: Awesome. We'll link that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Justin. Listeners, if you are on the older version of Ubuntu, now is the time to find an upgrade path. Catch you next week.